There are um, two movements, really. Uh, the first part is a healing story, and then it's Jesus interacting with this idea of a banquet. Um, for the first part, uh, there's, you, you've got a, a leader of the Pharisees, uh, so a legitimately good guy. Um, we, we tend to think of the Pharisees as like the enemy or the bad guy, but uh, they were extremely pious people. Um, they were deeply divided and entrenched. Some were very, very conservative and legalistic. Others were a lot more open and embracing of everybody. Um, Jesus tends to conflict with that first group. And uh, it was common to hold a banquet or a meal uh, and invite, say, like somebody who was traveling through who was well-known, especially a teacher or something like that. The understanding was that this teacher would come and teach, uh, I think after the meal, probably not while eating, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but it was a whole village affair. Like, if you weren't invited to eat at the table, that's fine. You would kind of sit and surround the people who were eating because they had the place of honor, or you'd poke your head through the window or something like that. <clears throat> uh, and anyway, as, as Jesus is sitting there, uh, there's a guy with dropsy, and everyone kind of knows what's going to happen. Now, first off, dropsy is kind of a disease, or it's, it's, it's a word that my grandparents, I think, would use. Um, I, the modern term would maybe be edema. It's the building up of fluid. Um, and actually, you get dropsy from the Greek word for it, hydropikos, and you can maybe hear that hydropikos, hydro, hydro, like hydrated. So he's watery, he's full of fluid, which sounds miserable to me. Uh, now the ancients looked at something like edema uh, and they drew a parallel. It, it seemed like the disease of wealth. Because if you have this condition, you'll, you might be thirsty and you might really need to be consuming water your body is just craving something to drink but it doesn't do anything with it you just kind of fill up and in the same way the ancients would say is wealth like you, you just need more and more and more even though it's slowly killing you um i'm about 50 50 on whether or not that parallel is intended here so i'll leave it with you you do my work for me yeah <clears throat> that was a joke um, not a good one, but come on. So he, um, he's, he's there, this poor guy, this watery guy, this swollen guy, and everyone kind of knows what's going to happen. Jesus has this reputation of healing, but it's a Sabbath. And there are rules around what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Um, and the, the rules get really, really picky. Uh, and now God just commands, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't work on that day. And I think I've, we've, we've talked about this before. That raises the question like, what counts as work? Uh, because certain things can be fun, but they're not work. But then if you do it for a living, but you enjoy it, is that fun? Like, and, and especially, or, or in particular for this discussion, um, there was a, a, an actual raging debate about whether or not you could heal somebody on the Sabbath, because that is work. Now, to modern ears, that sounds preposterous. 
And I would argue that it sounds preposterous to us because shortly after the time of Jesus, this debate gets settled. Um, None of the ancient sages or rabbis want to admit it, but I have a hunch it has something to do with the way Jesus interacted with the Sabbath and healing. Um, Just to give you an example, uh, you could, in the first century, consume vinegar, which, I don't know why you would, but it's actually in the, in, uh, it's documented. You could drink vinegar, but you couldn't drink it and suck it through a, an infected tooth to try and kind of kill away some of that infection. If you did that, then it was considered work on the Sabbath and you were breaking the Sabbath. Again, to us, it sounds super picky. But it's an important question. Um, I, I don't fault the Pharisees necessarily for this because they're trying to figure out how to observe Sabbath. Now, at some point along the way, they've lost the plot. If they're like, you can consume vinegar, but you can't suck it through a tooth or whatever, it's like, oh, give me a break. Um, for them, as it turns out, uh, when they, uh, they would say that when Messiah came, finally came, it would be like all of creation is feeling that Sabbath rest. This that there's like there's this poor guy, he's swollen, watery, it's full of fluid. And then there's Jesus, and it's a Sabbath. And if you notice, everyone around him is just kind of quiet about it. They're just waiting to see what happens. And they know what's gonna happen. So then Jesus heals him. Uh, which raises some questions. Did he just like like a like a slug when you pour salt on it? Or I've got questions that will never be answered, is what I'm trying to say. But then Jesus justifies his action. He says, look, you're walking around, and your son or one of your animals falls into a ditch. Are you going to pull them out? Which is technically work. The answer is, yeah, of course you are. And by drawing the analogy, he's saying like, look, of course you're going to do that. That's a little example. If you have the ability to heal somebody, even though it's the Sabbath, why wouldn't you do it? And then if you notice, in response, everyone is silent. So Jesus made an impression. And again, I would argue because it's like within a gen- the next generation, they kind of make this ruling that if you can preserve life or save life on a Sabbath, do it. And I, I'm convinced it, it goes back to Jesus. And then after this moment, which would be dramatic enough, like we could kind of talk about that for a while, uh, then Jesus is like sitting there and he's observing as people come in for this banquet, uh, people are, are like jockeying for the best seat. It'd be kind of like, you know, modern day, you've got, like, think of like a a formal dining table. You have the the head of the table, you know, that's always where dad sits. And then kind of how close you are to the head of the table is sort of how important you are or something like that. Um, Apparently, they were going around doing that. And Jesus is is sitting there just kind of watching, waiting for his moment. And then he's like, let me give you guys some advice. First off, don't do that. Um, It's much better, and he's right, uh, to take the lower place than when the host comes and says, 
man, why are you sitting all the way back there? Come up, up, up closer to me. Like that makes you look good. Whereas if someone is maybe sitting a little too high up the table for their standing, and he says, hey, you know, you go sit in the back, like, that's pretty shameful. And, I mean, he's right. Like, like the underlying principle here is, is, as we'd say, maybe when I lived in Texas, like, don't be too big for your britches or something like that. Um, I mean, this goes into, like, uh, hum- issues of humility and boasting. Um, and kind of thinking about this, uh, I mean, I would draw the analogy that, that some of the people who have made the biggest impression on me were the people who were, like, immensely talented or immensely successful in life or really well-respected, but when you met them, you, you never knew it. You, or you wouldn't know it. Like, it's not like they go around telling you about what they do and how successful they are, their accomplishments. Um, like I, I knew a guy who, um, he's retired now, but he was the CEO of a company I assume that you guys would recognize. Um, but when you meet him, you wouldn't know. You, you, you would say, he seems like kind of a regular guy. You'd probably get the impression that he's very sharp. Like, nothing gets past him. But he had no interest in explaining or, or, or dropping, you know, hints or dropping names or something like that, even though he is a personal friend of somebody I know everybody here knows. Um, that leaves, that sticks with you. Like, that's, that's kind of like a, wow, you don't have the ego that feels the need to to tell everybody how successful you are. That's a pretty solid sense of self. That's impressive. Um, another, it's kind of related. It's at least a funny story, and I want to tell it, and it's my birthday, so I get to. Um, <laughs> we, there was a funeral at my first congregation, and I wasn't doing it. I was the associate. I was just kind of helping out, and a guy walks in, and I'm like, do I know you? You look familiar. And I shake his hand, and he's like, well, I don't know, I've been around. Really humble guy. We talked for a minute, really nice. Um, again, pretty sharp. And uh, the funeral uh, go, uh, begins, and, and partway through, the, my counterpart, the senior pastor, gets up and says, you know, we've, we've been, uh, or we're fortunate to have a special guest. I'd like to now invite the mayor of Redwood City to come up. There's the guy I met. Do you ever, like, sink down in your chair? Like, ooh. <laughs> but then I realized, like, he didn't feel the need to say, you idiot, I'm the mayor. Um, I think that's kind of one of the things that, that's happening here. Is that there's, um, it's really good advice to be the person who doesn't feel the need to flex. Or talk about their accomplishments or put themselves in a place of honor because they know who they are. Now, interestingly enough, um, I mean, Jesus is telling this parable and it's really good advice. And I would commend this to everybody, especially myself. But did Jesus really go about his career going around giving good advice? Like, 
I, I don't think Rome is going to execute somebody as a threat to their interests because they went around giving good advice about being humble. I think on the surface level, this is good advice. Underneath it, this is a very striking warning. Because as Jesus is going around throughout his career, the point that he's trying to make is that God is finally doing what he said he's going to do. Like his Messiah's anointed one, the hero that everyone's been waiting for is here. But it doesn't look like how you think it might look. This isn't about a conquering hero. This isn't about nationalistic violence or something like that. But this is about God raising up the poor, the oppressed, those who've been kicked around by empire, and also those who've been kicked around by religious snobbery. And one of the symbols or metaphors that Jesus, and actually you find this, this pops up all over the New Testament, one of the metaphors that he uses to describe this moment is that God is gathering people to a banquet. I don't think that's a coincidence that Jesus is at a dinner party which is kind of like a small banquet, and he talks about a banquet as he continues to kind of near, get closer and closer toward Jerusalem. And he's talking to people who assume have a place of honor at the table when these are the same people who were mad at Jesus because he just healed somebody on the Sabbath. I think the underlying meaning here to these religious elite is that he's warning them, saying, you may not have the place at the table that you think you do. That takes guts. And... and the, the, the warning there, I mean, there, there's a warning and an encouragement here. The warning here is that for those of us who fancy ourselves religious, which if you're here, there's like a 98% chance that that's you. Um, like, there, there's, there's one thing to have assurance. Yes, I'm a beloved child of God. Yes, of course you are. There's a dangerous side to that, though, where we can fall into this trap of assuming that maybe we deserve this. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. Uh, I've got it right. And all of those other people, they're less deserving because I'm a child of God. In other words, I'm right, and they are wrong. And if history has shown us anything, it's that the, the, the people who are convinced that they are right and convinced that they have the truth are much more likely to become the persecutors. I think that's the warning here Jesus is giving. 
both to the people who are there saying, you guys are about to miss your moment, by the way, because you guys are going to reject me, and you missed it. But I think the warning for us is, is almost the same. It's very easy for us to convince or, or to con- um, convince ourselves that we, as the, the correct ones, the ones who have the truth, we've got the truth, we've figured it out or something like that, like we're right and everybody else is wrong and that makes us just like the people who were picking the places of honor at the table. That's the darker side of what Jesus is saying. The good news is that as Jesus is going around and not giving good advice, but rather he is giving good news, is that if we take seriously what we believe, the fact that we have any sense of this truth or we can make any claim about being a child of God redeemed by Jesus is not because we figured it out. Nobody here, whether you think you did or not, sat there in a room with a Bible and a couple of other books and put it all together. In fact, if we really believe what we believe, the faith you have and your place at the table is a gift that not only can you not earn it, you, me, we do not deserve it. But Jesus does, and he gave that place to us. And I think that's a really important distinction. Because it maybe changes the way we hold on to this thing we call truth this thing we call grace, or the fact that we have a place at God's table as a member of his family. That it's not something that we grasped or we seized or we, we figured out or held on to ourselves, but it's a gift. The fact that I can say that Jesus, when he went to his death, took all of our sin and our brokenness and our tendency to think that we are better than others, to elevate ourselves over others, to put our, take our, our metaphorical place of honor at the table when we don't deserve it. All of that died with Jesus and he earned our forgiveness for us. That when God raised Jesus from the dead and created new life, that same new life exists in us and it is likewise a gift That's a different kind of assurance. That's the kind of assurance that doesn't necessarily compel me to go around and tell everybody that they are wrong because I am right. But rather, it's the kind of grace and it's a kind of a gift that is unearned, it is undeserved, and instead it just compels me to love others Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able.